Hello, Jill Mott, sommelier. Beer, wine, spirits, cocktails, all the things. How are you today? I am great. Ms. Emily Reese, radio host, classical music and jazz extraordinaire. <laughs> I'm fantastic. Thank you for asking. How are you? I'm good. I'm excited to talk about sharks and things we think are graceful and perfect. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. Emily and I have, we realized uh, over the past months that we have an, a mutual obsession with said animal, the yeah, shark. We like sharks. We've, we've, that's how we've passed some of the time this pandemic, watching multiple shark documentaries. <laughs> I've been obsessed with sharks ever since I was a, a wee lass. Mm-hmm. I can remember... At our local library, my father and I would go when I was around eight, maybe a little, maybe a little younger. And I remember the aisle that the the books were always in because there was a hole in the ceiling, and I would follow the hole in the ceiling, and I would get to the aisle where the shark books and the planets nice. books were located. Yeah. Um, and that obsession has never waned over the years. Mine started, I don't know when, we used to go visit my dad's parents in Florida. So I'm sure maybe that's how that started, like learning about the ocean and stuff. And then I came back in first grade at some point and tried to write a journal. Remember how you had to like do journal entries? Yeah. And, yeah. and I wrote a journal entry about a nurse shark and my teacher didn't she thought I made it up. She thought that there was no, and of course there's no internet in like 1981 or two or whenever that was. Mm-hmm. So she, she just made me rewrite it. Come on. I know. What, I don't, what was her name? Mrs. Owens. Come on, Mrs. Owens. I know. So I Get your shit together. I always kind of had a little bit of animosity toward her for that. I'm like, really? Huh. Come on. There's, there's actually nurse sharks. But anyway, we usually talk about Wine and music, or beer and music, something. We always tie it together somehow, and it's rarely due to provenance, but once in a while it is. Yeah. And there's usually a theme that binds them, and that theme is like, yes, it's kind of an outside theme, but not. This time it's totally outside. Yeah. And we were like, well, okay, so how can we tie sharks into an episode of Scores and Pores? And we're like, okay, what do we think about them? Well, they're the number one most graceful animal yeah. Probably ever designed yeah. by nature. Like amazing. Yeah, they're like so streamlined most I mean, of course they're like what, like five hundred different types of sharks. I think there are way I think there are more than I'm that. sure there are way more if you start digging in the bottom of the ocean where nobody knows what's going on down there. But <laughs> but there's hundreds mm-hmm. at the least. And so not all of them are beautifully streamlined, but most of them are. And they're just kind of perfect. In their design, and they've been around forever. And along with spiders, gross. They're like one of the oldest creatures still yeah. existing on our planet. They've like lived through how many extinctions? They're just down there getting it. Yeah. When we f this all up, and <laughs> humans are no longer here, they're going to be getting it if we haven't yeah. killed them all. I know. Yeah. Right. Yeah. We are going to throw in a couple awesome shark facts um, because, <laughs> as if you don't know already, Emily and I are both marine biologists. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> certified. Just kidding. So just to kind of throw those in there, not only because it, they have a little bit of a conservationist spin, but then others that are just cool, like the fact that they, you know, eat their yeah. siblings in the uterus kind of thing is just amazing. They are perfectly designed predators. I am going to talk today about burgundy and specifically Pinot Noir and Burgundy, because I do think it's what many people would consider the epitome of grace and perfection. 
it's elusive, like sharks can be, and it's also, it is hunted. Now, we, yes, sharks are hunters, mm-hmm. but they're more hunted than they actually are hunters when it comes time to, like, involving man. You yeah. know, obviously they have to hunt to survive. And they're amazing predators and hunters. But I want to talk about how hunted Burgundy is and kind of touch just a little bit on that. Mm-hmm. And that's my spin. What's your spin? I'm going to talk about a Russian composer, Peter Tchaikovsky, that I often give a lot of shit to, but I do admire you and love, love. You love some Tchaikovsky. I do. Yeah. No, I definitely do. Because I think that Tchaikovsky wrote some of the most perfect dance music. And so we're going to listen to music from one of his ballets, called Swan Lake, which is maybe the most famous ballet in the world. So, you know, you said, what do you think of when you think of grace in music? And I immediately, just not even half a second went by, and I thought of Tchaikovsky's ballets. And there are a lot of wonderful ballets out there uh, from all kinds of composers, but, you know, honestly, my favorite ballets are all by Russian composers, but... Mm. Tchaikovsky's Swan Lake is graceful and beautiful, and even though the premiere itself was far from perfect, it, it really is kind of the perfect ballet. So, You may not know this about me. Actually, you don't know this about me. It's not on my bucket list, per se, because I think only, you know, few things should be on the, that should be, that's quite a thing, the yeah. bucket list. But it's like in my bigger tub that's on the side of the bucket list yeah. is to see Swan Lake someday. Like it's, I I just really think it would be incredible to see, especially if it were like in Europe or in Russia, that would be quite insane. Yeah. And to see the Marinsky Ballet do it in Russia, in St. Petersburg would be kind of the place to go do that because there's a, and there's a special reason why, and we can, we can talk about that later as well when I kind of help parse through the very confusing beginnings and uh, evolutions of Swan Lake. We'll, we'll talk about why the Marinsky Ballet would maybe be the place to go do that. Well, do we want to dive into... I, I've already talked about Burgundy and the history of Burgundy more in depth in a previous episode, so yeah. check that out. I'm not going to go so deep into that now because, yes, that has to do you know, with the fact that you know, why Burgundy is so revered, but I want to touch more on like nuances and, and mm-hmm. things like that. So do you want to start with a little bit of Pinot Noir speak or should we music? Let's music. Okay. Love yeah. that. Let's go ahead and just hear one of the most famous pieces of all from Swan Lake, something I'm sure you'll recognize. And this is one of the waltzes and it's, uh, you know, it's pretty great music to dance to. Let's do it. As you can hear with the way I'm speaking into the mic, not not a hundred percent straight. I'm I'm waltzing over here and my she's, I'm swaying back and she's forth. Swaying. I mean, to me, Tchaikovsky makes you want to dance, and it makes you want to be flung around a ballroom. 
Especially right there. Yeah. So good. Oh, it's so pretty. Yep. imagine except for me right now I'm obviously I'm humming to it I can't imagine like this being like an opera or you know like it just you need people dancing yeah to tell the story this is definitely music for dance and um you know I mentioned that some of my other uh, favorite ballets are also from Russian composers and I think of like Stravinsky or well I think of Stravinsky and the Rite of Spring or the Firebird or um, any of Stravinsky's dance music as like instinctual and primal. And I think of like Tchaikovsky's dance music as just like glee and joy and all the all the innocence, you know, which is the kind which is actually oxymoronic, right? Because the story itself is quite depressing. Oh, the right? story of Swan Lake is so sad. <laughs> It's almost, it mirrors actually to a T the elation, the joy, the glee with which people look forward to opening or buying their burgundy to mostly be disappointed. Yeah. And why (laughs) is that? I mean, you can drop like hundreds of dollars on a bottle. Hundreds, thousands. I was talking with a gentleman who actually, um, the people at New France are really great about giving us deals on wine to help us. They know that our podcast is supported by our patrons, and you and I. Um, And so this actually is a good opportunity to thank all of our existing patrons. We could not do this without you. If you want to support Scores and Pours, please do so. Patreon.com slash Scores and Pours. We have tiers where you can sign up. And it's very easy to decide which, you know, level works best for you. There's always patron-only content with every level, but in some cases there's even some free merch. And if you can't donate, this is our gift to you. Yeah, and you can find us on Instagram as well. If you have any show ideas or comments or questions, you can DM us at Scores and Pours on Instagram. So, yeah. So back to the story about this gentleman, Ray, who, you know, put put these wines uh, in for me when I placed an order. He was like, he works for New France, and he's like, Jill, I remember the first time I met you years ago. These words have stuck with me ever since. And he's a young guy in the wine world, and he said, you told me Burgundy will break my heart, and no one has ever said anything so true. Uh-huh. Um, and he's obviously, you know, he's tasted some good Burgundy, but Burgundy is a lot like, now, I've, I've, I've never done heroin, but I've heard that you, you know, you do heroin once, and then you, like, are always searching for that first high. Mm-hmm. Pinot Noir, and in Burgundy specifically, is very much like that, where, you know, people might be tasting it, trying it, buying it however they're experiencing it, but they, they'll they finally have one. So it's not their first one, like yeah. the drug. And they're awestruck by how perfect it can be yeah. and how there's just no, that's like the apex of wine more than any other wine. People would probably not argue that Pinot Noir is that, that grape that showcases because it is sort of a neutral... You know, it's beautiful red fruit tones, but it can, because it's sort of neutral, like Chardonnay we've talked about, it really can showcase the nuances of soil type. And granted, 
Now we have clay limestone soils in different different forms throughout Burgundy. So we're in eastern central France. And it can really showcase, you know, you when you have like a few different vineyard sites in one place, you have, you know, just the slightest change in exposition you know, the way the sun hits the slope or the gradient of the slope or the soil type or the altitude of the vines or the age of the vines, those all become very magnified to reveal like these really fine differences in a wine where people dedicate their whole lives to learning about the small space of land. And what's fascinating is Normally, when you go and get an entry-level wine that's, we'll say, $40, it's usually quite uninteresting, but people get their feet wet that way. And then the minute they have something that's, like, life-changing, then they spend the rest of their life trying to find those bottles. And even if they spend a lot of money, that doesn't necessarily guarantee they're going to have that experience in Burgundy. So I would say out of the thousands of bottles of Burgundy I've tasted, I've had that experience like five times. Wow. And it's just the way the, it's just, it's just heartbreak. Yeah. <laughs> now, how many times would you say you've opened a bottle and thought, I wish I wouldn't have opened this for another year or two or three? Um, that is, I would say a good 75% of the time that I open them. I, I've, you know, I've had enough Burgundy to know when, like in this case, we're going to open some 2017s from the same producer, just different vineyard plots and different communes, they're called, which means villages basically. And these are going to be too young. So we're going to taste mm. them and they're going to be fun and enjoyable, but they're not going to, you know, these are, um, I think I told you yesterday when we were talking about you know, how much are we spending in our scores and pours budget? If we were in a restaurant and we were to tip on these bottles, we'd be spending $400 on these bottles of wine. That's incredible. Yeah, it's pretty ridiculous. And are we going to get $400 worth of enjoyment today? We're not. Would we get $400 of enjoyment providing we could afford that in, say, I don't know, maybe 10 years? Yeah. Perhaps we would. But in 10 years, those aren't going to be $400 anymore. No, you're right. They're going to be like six hundred dollars. Yeah. So, <laughs> yes, they're they're happy Burgundy days. Yeah, amazing, amazing. Well, do you want to hear more about Swan Lake? Please, I we kind of teased the story and then we didn't go. There. Yeah, tell me about tell me about the depressing nature. Uh, yet it yeah. sounds very and you know as is the case with any huge long production. Tchaikovsky's music for Swan Lake is two and a half hours ish. With any production like that, companies all around the world are going to make changes and tweaks, and sometimes they'll change the ending so that you don't leave the the production feeling like there's no hope in the world. Okay. <laughs> but this is a very typical story of a prince who uh, has to choose a bride, and he doesn't want to choose a bride. He wants to fall in love and and marry that person. But his queen mother is like, you're going to be the king. You have to choose a bride. And so he's really bummed out. And his best friend is throwing him a party and is like, hey, cheer up. Let's go hunting. So, you know, and there are various twists on even that story by itself. But generally speaking, that's what happens. So they go hunting. They see all these swans. And suddenly one of them turns into a woman, Odette, and he falls in love with Odette, finds out that Odette is enchanted by an evil sorcerer who has enchanted all of these women to be swans, and they can only be women at night. And so he's like, I love you, Odette. I'm going to marry you. Come to my ball, 
where I have to choose a bride. The ball gets thrown. Uh, evil sorcerer disguises his own daughter to look like Odette. Her name is Odile. So Prince falls in love with Odile, thinking it's Odette. Oh, oops. You know what I mean? Breaks the vow, everything's ruined, and they all drown at the end, basically. I oh, wow. skipped a bunch, but I mean, essentially, that's what happens. They're They're both just so distraught, like... Odette is distraught that he vowed his love to Odile. The prince is distraught that he's vowed his love to Odile. He had no intention of doing that, but what's done is done. It's all over. Sad. Whatever. Yeah. And so Odette and the prince drown themselves, and then somehow the sorcerer dies. And yeah. So it's, good lord. Yeah. It's it's pretty depressing, but the music is great. <laughs> <laughs> Let's listen to more. Let's listen to more. So I'll play you another really famous piece from Swan Lake. This is known as the Swan Theme, and uh, it goes like this. Do you recognize this one, too? You've heard this? Yeah. Very famous, beautiful oboe solo. Typical, uh, gorgeous, lush Tchaikovsky melody, memorable. Keep keep in mind, too, folks, how this sounds, that tension and pitch with the, the lush uh, surrounding of the strings. Just remember that when we taste our first wine. Well, the harp plays a huge role and is heard constantly throughout Swan Lake. Beautiful harp writing. The horns come in. I mean, and listen to the force of the force of this music is huge. the The orchestra itself is big, and uh, that's something that after the premiere, uh, Tchaikovsky intended on changing. Now, I I would assume like he to made- make it smaller. I am, that's my assumption, because that was one of the big complaints, is that the orchestra was way too big and just way too powerful. You know, when you hear it in moments like that, you're like, yeah, this is a very symphonic ballet, you know, and and he scored it for like, a piccolo, two flutes, two oboes, two clarinets that double on actually three different clarinets. So two clarinet players, two bassoons, there's like four horns, four trumpets, I think three trombones, one of which is a bass trombone, a tuba, the harp. Of course, I didn't even mention the strings, full string section, and then a huge array of percussion instruments. And you'll hear in other music that we play, you'll hear cymbals and triangle and... Well, I guess, you know, when you compare this to, you know, ballet, not obviously not all ballets are scored like in this manner, but I imagine if we're, you know, opera, 
yes, you have the music to tell the story, but you have words to tell the story. Yeah. And nowadays you even have the subtitle screen to tell you the story. Yes. Whereas like, you know, in this way, you really need all those instruments to, you know, help iterate what what the Do story you know? is about. <laughs> I, I don't know, maybe. <laughs> yeah, maybe I to mean, give a little bit more dimension. Like it sounds like, you know, the swans might be making noise and the water might be rippling and yeah. things like that. And then you have all the, just the human aspect of the story as well. Yeah. Um, yeah. You have sorcerers, so you've got magic happening. You yeah. know, so there's just a lot of, I think, elements. There are a lot of elements. But there's and also a lot of instruments. <laughs> there's a lot of instruments because, of course, ballets were being written decades before this with half as much and to to similar impact. But, I mean, it's like this was a time because he was commissioned to write this in 1875 and he spent the next year writing it. So that's a time in classical music when orchestras are getting pretty big and this is just what composers did. So it makes sense for the era, 100%, that it's such a big orchestra but for that subgenre of ballet, it's a little excessive, you know, which I mean, who am I to say? Like I don't I don't have a dog in that fight. I think it's great the way it is, mm-hmm. but you know, it's just that was one of many complaints at the premiere. Now, other complaints had nothing to do with Tchaikovsky. I guess the choreography was boring and uninteresting and the okay. story was maybe hard to follow or some, something, who knows? But um, you know, Tchaikovsky's part in the quote-unquote, failure of the premiere, which is kind of an overstatement. Um, The premiere being lackluster, let's say, was not all Tchaikovsky's fault by any means. So, uh, you know, and the the ballet still had several dozen, like, uh, shows still. So it's not like the premiere happened and it never showed again. So, you know, it was just some things that I think everybody that took part in it and in the creation of it understood some things could be changed to make this a long-lasting production. Mm -hmm. And that's what ended up happening. You know, I mean, Tchaikovsky died before that could happen. But again, this is literally, I mean, and and the only other ballet that I could think of that would be more famous than Swan Lake would be another Tchaikovsky ballet, The Nutcracker. Okay. So, because of course that's done at Christmas in every town around the world. Yeah. (laughs) At Christmas time. So, you know... um, it it still it did become successful despite kind of a, a not great premiere, but anyway. Well, I'm I'm kind of I'm looking at the parallels with Burgundy because most producers, you know, yes, there are some differences, obviously in parcels and land holdings that people have, but like once they get their fruit, people are like, well, do I do some whole cluster fermentation or do I destem it all? And then you just have this fruit that's ready and you know ready to go, ready to get crushed and, and macerate with the juice. But by and large, everybody is picking later these days. They're picking so the grapes are riper. They have more phenolic ripeness, so a little bit less acidity and more available aromas um, and more sugar level, like a higher sugar level. And so to me, that means that if, and, and if we couple that with global warming, the way that Burgundy used to be made, it was picked earlier, a lot higher acid. You needed to age it in order to drink it. Nowadays, Burgundy is sort of, it's it's made in, with a similar, we'll say, recipe between, you know, people age their wine between 12 and 18 months. And any combination of used and new oak is a lot, you know, that's kind of the general way people do things. A lot of people don't filter. Um, they don't fine. They add, you know, 
some normal amounts of sulfur, we'll say, that there's not a lot of natural producers in Burgundy. But that said, are these wines really going to age for 35 to 40 years? Like, you used to have to age your Burgundy for, like, decades. Wow. And now you can age them for, like, a decade and they or, or two, and they can taste really good because they just don't – they weren't – built the same way with the same amount of structure. Sure. And the climate's different now than it was 30, 50 years ago. So is there like ready-to-drink Burgundy that you can go buy? I mean, when you go buy a, a village level, and so we'll say, or a we'll say a greater regional level, like it just says Bourgogne Rouge on the front, so you know it's from Burgundy, and you know the year and the producer. Generally, that stuff, yeah, you can age it for five years, and it it'll, might get a little bit better and more interesting, but by and large, those wines are for immediate consumption. Okay. And, you know, some people that are diehard Burgundy fans will say, listen, the $10,000 bottle of this Grand Cru, I'm going to buy this same really important producers and heralded producers regional wine. Yeah. So now that's a probably $200 regional wine, right? Wow, yeah. Um, that's probably not ready to drink right now. That probably needs a few years. Okay. And, but it also depends on the the year, you know, was it a cold yeah. year? Was it a warm year? Stuff like that. Yeah. Um, do you want to taste? Yes, please. I would love to. So I chose a producer, Domaine Louis Boyot, and the two wines. So we're in the Cote d'Or, which is the Golden Slope. It's the most prestigious place and the most expensive rent in the world for Pinot Noir. <laughs> Pinot Noir is the fifth most planted red variety in the world, and ten percent of that acreage is in Burgundy. Wow. Um, now, we're not going to talk about Chablis. That's kind of, by and large, Chardonnay country. We're not going to talk about the Macon or Beaujolais. We're going to focus on the Cote d'Or. I decided to pick this producer because, and, and kind of this all things equal except for the site, so you could get an idea of tasting something from the Cote de Nuit versus the Cote de Bone. Now, the Cote de Nuit, the village that I chose is Gevry Chambertin, and a small parcel called Le Evocel. And then the second wine we'll taste is from the Cote de Bone. So we're traveling south, uh, you know, a couple dozen kilometers, and we're getting to the, the commune of Volnay and the, the small plot called Le Grand Poisson. Now, Gevry Chambertin, when you heard that like high pitched oboe and then yeah. the, the coddling of the strings, uh, the string section, Gevry Chambertin is known for its muscle, it's known for its acid. But it's also known for, you know, it's nice kind of earthy fruit. Hmm. Whereas Volnay is known for, it's a little bit rounder. It's a little bit more plush. It's a little bit more floral. And they're both can be age-worthy wines, but I hate this description, but I'm just going to use it to make things easy. A lot of Cote de Nuit, people say, oh, those are more masculine wines. Mm. And Cote de Bone, Volnay in this case, they're a little bit more feminine wines. Mm -hmm. So, you mm -hmm. know, poo-poo that stupid out-of-date reference, but <laughs> it, back in the sommelier days, that was a very common reference. Okay. So let's smell and taste this Gevry Chambertin and tell me what you think. Okay. Wow, yeah, it's very fruity. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so taste them side by side and kind of go back and forth and, and tell me what you think. Um, I, this is the easiest way, I think, to really get to know, uh, you know, villages or specific sites, because if you get uh, two different producers from two different regions that have, you know, two different ages, meaning two different vintages, you know, all things aren't equal to start being able to decipher those minute differences. How do you feel about the differences? Is that pretty um, noticeable for you? And I'm, I'm, I apologize for having given that to you before 
you could have just told me what you thought. I oh. sort of spoon-fed you, so I'm sorry about that. But just to give listeners an idea of like yeah. the whole... The Gevry Chambertin, to me, is fruitier. Mm-hmm. And the Volnay, to me, is not as fruity. <laughs> I can't really... or I, I, The Gevry, to me, is like... And with my terrible descriptors here, it's like fruitier, like dark red, really ripe fruity flavor. And when I taste the Volnay, it tastes like tart, less ripe cherries to me. In my opinion, the Givry has a bit more tannin. Yeah. It's got a nice core of like cranberry and cherry fruit. It's got a little bit more muscle. And to me, the Volnay fruit is a little bit flatter. Yes. I think it's a little bit more floral. There's yes. a little bit more of like a floral retronasal. Yes. We opened these yesterday to taste them and to get an idea. But sometimes Burgundy needs a little bit of air. Unfortunately, they're not always better on day two. And I think they're both very indicative of where they're from but they were a little bit more vibrant yesterday. Would mm. you agree? Yes. I definitely get the floral from the Volnay compared to the Gevry. I I really agree, too, that the Gevry is just fruitier. Mm-hmm. You know, And for me, that makes me like it better a little, but I, I think they're both delicious. You know? Now, these are both coming from 50 to 60-plus-year-old vines, average age, which is old in Burgundy, so they have mm. intensity. These need to age a little bit of time. They're all in less than 20% new oak, so they this producer does not want new oak to shine over the fruit, which is really nice. Yeah. They also come from, they're in parcels. I showed you on the map yesterday. They're bumped right up against some pretty expensive Premier Cru territory that those Premier Cru's definitely need to age. So Le Vaucel is a site that we're on the eastern part of the slope, the, the golden slope. We're, we're facing like this eastern exposure. It's quite high up on the hill, and it actually has a, a pretty steep gradient for this area. So like we're, we're within about 375-ish meters, and we go, we drop all the way down to 325. And then if we look at Le Grand Poisson, it's like flatter. It's on a little bit more of a flatter part of the slope. So we're like less than 250 meters and it's it doesn't have that steep exposition. It's a little bit flatter and it's also just a little bit more southeast. So all of those differences and then plus being obviously however many kilometers further south, Le Grand Poisson has a totally different orientation mm-hmm. than Le Vaucel. Mm-hmm. And so these are really good, I would say, values at, you know, restaurant <laughs> tipping on it, 200 bucks a bottle. This is a great, you know, way to kind of taste close to Premier Cru quality, but you're, you know, you're able to drink it sooner. You're spending a little less money. Yeah. yeah. If that makes any sense. Yeah, it does. So again, the whole reason this episode came up was because we both love sharks. Like, yes. I remember early in the Scores and Pours days, uh, meeting at a coffee shop, to do some studying and some talking about show ideas and things like that. And you were wearing a shark sweater. And I was just like, okay. Or maybe also shark socks and 
I wouldn't. I, I don't think I'd double up. I don't think I would double up. You know, but I do remember wearing the shark sweater because the dude at the counter was like, "Wow, that's a great sweater," <laughs> and you were like, "Yes, yes, it is a great sweater." And I was like, "Oh, you like sharks too? Yeah, dope." Yeah. Which yes, we should talk about sharks for a brief ten just seconds. for half a minute. Yeah. Okay. So why are sharks badasses? Did just you know they just are. I know they totally are, but did you know that female sharks can hold viable sperm in them? Until they're just ready to use it. I love that's where you go first. <laughs> well, because I just think it's fascinating. Like the record, I think, is it was off the coast of California. It was a bamboo shark. And this little bamboo shark just freaking getting it 45 months of just of hanging just, like, on hanging to the sperm. Out, hanging on to the sperm till it was like ready. Till she was like, I, I just want to use it now because they, you know, there are sharks can be, not all species, but sometimes sharks are solitary animals and mm-hmm. they don't. They, you know, may not have a mate readily available when they are, are when they're feeling the need to procreate. Yeah, yeah. And so, you know, what what better way to not only just carry the sperm until you need it, yeah. but also, like, then maybe the sperm is the survival of the fittest because they can have actually multiple different male sperm within them. Oh, so they can, so like, they can, get it with a bunch of different dudes, yep. dude sharks, and hang on to the sperm of all those different dude sharks. Yes, ma'am. Crazy. And then, as I understand it, yes, and then so then what they're going to use, they don't sit and go, oh, I'm going to use that one. No, but the one that is probably the most viable is the one that stays oh, uh, the longest. Okay. You know, yeah. Isn't that Whoa, crazy? That's insane. What about, so we're on the reproductive, we might as well just stay there. Yeah. Viviparous, ovoviviparous, and oviparous. Those are the three types of births sharks can do. Oviparous, obviously. Eggs. Eggs, ovo, huevo in Spanish, that comes from the Latin word. And so they're laying a little sack on the bottom of the ocean and kind of Bob's your uncle. It's it's an easy concept to think about. The little shark grows in the egg sack and hatches. Yeah. Then we have Viviparous, where there's like a live birth, like very humans. similar to humans. Yeah, you know, you, umbilical the, cord. Umbilical cord is, is, and then you have ovoviviparous. Let's have a couple different uteruses. Yeah, inside us. Let's lay eggs inside us. Yeah, and then let's let's hatch them inside us, and then let's give a live birth. Yeah, but it's not considered viviparous because there's not an umbilical cord. Right. Like seriously, and it weirds me out that sharks do all three of those. They do. It's depending on the species, yeah. they, they you know, will fit into a different category. So Emily and I just concurred. We think <laughs> that sand tiger sharks are oviviviparous. And like I mentioned, yes, we are marine biologists, but we're not really. <laughs> so, you know, pardon us if we're wrong. But they do have what is called intrauterine cannibalism, where they Amazing. can, babies are hatched, and whatever one grows the biggest the longest, like the quickest, mm-hmm. will start to like nibble on the siblings to sustain itself. Yeah. And then a few pups are hatched at one time. So there may be as many as, you know, dozens of siblings and, you know, wow. s- sibling A, yeah. meaning the longest, yeah. is just hungry. Let's just get it. Wow. That's, it's just, fa- I mean, it's fascinating shit. That's just amazing. There's some ugly ones too. Those sand tigers are ugly. They're the ones you see at aquariums and stuff because they can survive captivity. Like lots of sharks can't. Like yeah. great whites can't. I think the longest a great white has ever been 
alive in captivity is a handful of weeks or something, and that was a big deal. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, it's sand tigers are the ones you see in aquariums and stuff, and they are just snaggly tooth motherfuckers, man. They're ugly. What is your favorite type of shark or types? Well, I have a lot. You know, I I think they're they're so varied, and there are so many different kinds that there are things to like about numerous. Like, I think the differences that set them apart, you know, that make them unique. Like a bull shark, for instance, I think has uh, is interesting because of the way their teeth are structured. So. You know, other sharks either have serrated teeth or not serrated teeth, but bull sharks have both a serrated edge on one side of the tooth and a non-serrated edge on the other side of the tooth. So, like, yeah, think about that. Why? Why hasn't what badass chef in the world has a knife that like has both? Like, just yeah. get get it, people. I know. <laughs> it's just amazing. <laughs> it's amazing, and it makes for incredible efficiency by the way they bite, and mm-hmm. so their bites are easily easily discerned because of that because they're so clean uh and uh, but then there's like the bite like the cookie cutter shark that is kind of parasitic and so you'll see these dolphins and whales and other animals out in the ocean that have perfect little round circles Mm -hmm. of flesh taken out of their body and it's just this weird looking tuby looking shark that like attaches and eats a chunk of skin and is like later Whoa. So weird to me. I like the Greenland shark. I think it's like just let's let's survive three hundreds. to five hundred years. Just getting it, just hundreds of years. Yep. And blind just, as blind as bats with yep. little wormy parasites that eat out their eyes and take their eyesight. Yeah, because you know what? They don't need to see. They just they, they get it. it. They're they just can, like yeah. They can. Yeah, it's just incredible that things can live for centuries. Everything that's happening up top. Yeah, they're just like peace. Yeah. That's awesome. I love, who doesn't love a great white shark? I mean, seriously. Gentle giant. Because well, are they really like Jaws? Well, it can be. But well, I mean, to seals, they don't they don't attack humans yeah. as much as we all think they do. No, Jaws was a terrible movie for that yeah. purpose. I still loved it because it that kicked off, I think, part of my obsession as well. But um, It also made a lot of people never want to swim the ocean. It, they th- but with yeah. for, you know, certain, I, I get it, mm-hmm, that's mm-hmm. whatever, a fear. Yeah. So I love me uh, a great white shark. I just think that they're just, I mean, I, can't, I don't even have words. Mysterious. Um, yeah, they're so mysterious. I don't know. And I just, just like, I mean, look at like a basking shark, just mouth open. Just giant days, mouth. Just all the time. Those... I've always found really creepy looking as well, just because who wants to see that coming at you? Even though they're plankton eaters and all of that, they, they're like whales in that way. They just take in and filter out the little krill and yep. whatnot. So they're not going to go after your leg or anything. But I know, but that coming after you, you whoa. Could, I mean, you could just go, you could just swim in its mouth. Yeah, oops. <laughs> Creepy. Whoa. But they're amazing creatures. I've always found them so fascinating. And, uh, you know, I like having books about sharks and stuff mm-hmm. like that. I don't know. Wow. But Tchaikovsky was also a fascinating creature. <laughs> let's let's Tchaikovsky some more. Yeah, so I'm going to try and explain to you how this music got changed over time. Uh, because, you know, I mentioned that... You know, the, the premiere didn't go well, and so everybody involved wanted to make some changes. And I think a lot of people who were both involved at the time and who just admired it uh, thought, you know, we really could bring this back, and this could be a successful thing. And so the uh, director of the Imperial Theaters, who has a big, long Russian name I can't say, <laughs> uh, along with a French choreographer named uh, Marius Petipa, and... 
an Italian ballet composer and conductor named Riccardo Drigo. And at the time, Drigo was leading the Marinsky Ballet. So those three talked to Tchaikovsky and planned a revival of Swan Lake. But then Tchaikovsky died. And so they decided to go ahead and do it anyway, and that Drigo would be the one to revise all the music. And so Drigo went through, and Drigo really did not write very much original music of his own that was inserted into Swan Lake. If anything, Drigo would write a measure here or there to add some things maybe as a bridge or to, okay. to help transition into the next piece that came after it. Mostly what Drigo did was change tempos. He cut a lot of numbers, did a little bit of um, reordering of the act. So Tchaikovsky's music for Swan Lake was a four-act ballet. Drigo's music is three acts. So it's a little shorter, a little more comprehensive. Okay. Some of the pieces he did change the key on and things like that. The other thing Drigo did is he found music that Tchaikovsky had already written for piano. And he took that music and orchestrated it and put it into the ballet. Do you want to hear one of those pieces? I would love to. Please. Let's hear the piano piece first. Again, this is something that Tchaikovsky composed for piano, and then Ricardo Drigo took and turned it into orchestra music. Oh, so can we listen to both? Yeah, we'll listen to the piano one first. It's right. called Valse Bluet, and it's from a set of piano pieces Tchaikovsky wrote that's simply just called 18 Pieces for Piano. So they're not necessarily, they weren't all a part of Swan Lake. Like this was something Tchaikovsky wrote and it was, you know, well, yep. well received. And then Drigo went and took that and was like, this is an amazing piece and would fit great in the Swan Lake. Okay. Yeah. And, and I think you'll hear how perfectly it fits because it, you know, again, Tchaikovsky, just a master of melody and the master of dance. And so he writes this little waltz for piano and it turns out it's a great waltz that can be used in an orchestra for a ballet. Just so Russian and melodic. Yeah, just beautiful. Mm -hmm. Let's hear the orchestra version. Little slower. Triangles. Yep, little triangle in the background. Beautiful clarinet. This is a great depiction. Oboe, Givry Chambertin, Clarinet, Volney. Yes. So that's one of the pieces that Drigo took from existing music of Tchaikovsky's 
to put into Swan Lake, the ballet, to make oh, it, it fits, a little bit better. It fits beautifully. It fits absolutely beautifully. And he did that three times. Okay. He did that with three different piano pieces of Tchaikovsky's. Yeah, because even if Tchaikovsky did want to put in that piano piece, it's like, well, that doesn't fit. Yeah. You know, I mean, it like... You'd, it you would have to be orchestral. It, yeah, yeah, it needs to be like with yeah. more like grandeur and yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, that's cool. And the the whole ballet really is. Uh, uh, I just can't recommend it enough to listen to it because even if you're you know just putzing around the house or you're out in the backyard, whatever it is that you're doing, ballet music of this era, the late 1800s, this is meant for motion. This is mm-hmm. meant for you to be dancing. This is meant for, you know, no matter how depressing the story gets, there's really light and fanciful moments in this. Mm-hmm. And so I find it really satisfying to like do housework with ballet music and mm-hmm. all those things because there's this inherent motion in the music, right? And it sounds very timeless, which kind of speaks a little bit to what, you know, we did an episode a couple couple weeks ago where we talked about like timelessness in music mm-hmm. and also like the motion and the light and fanciful. And, you know, if I could just speak to Pinot Noir, Pinot Noir has this timeless quality as well because it is, you know, they think it's 2,000 years old. It's been in Burgundy since the mid-1300s. So when we think of great quality ballet, and we'll say, I don't want to say old school ballet because nowadays, you know, you and I were talking about ballet yesterday and it was like ballet could kind of be anything these days. You yeah. know, people can make it look and sound however they want. There's you hear Russian ballet and it just sounds very classic. And from I imagine that era. Yeah, yeah. From mm-hmm. a from a time, yeah. And you know, Burgundy, the reason why Burgundy is like the apex slash epicenter of Pinot Noir is because, and most people wouldn't argue that, is because it's been there since the 1300s. So it's mm-hmm. people have had time to study in all the written records of like where Pinot Noir shines best. Now, that's not to say terroir in this area, it's, it is some of the most expensive vineyard land in the world. Because of erosion, and it's so monocultured, people are, you know, it's heavily regulated, but they're bringing dirt from the bottom of the hill and bringing it up to the top of the hill. Now we're changing terroir. Yeah. So there's that element of it, too, that people are, you know, that are kind of not anti-Burgundy, but are like, listen, the there's stuff going on. There's not a lot of natural winemaking. So I, I get that too. And yeah. I also, I agree with that to some extent as well. When we talk about grace and we we talk about kind of perfect, because you're like, it's perfect for motion. One of my kind of issues with Burgundy is like, okay, the search for perfection and it's expensive and you never find it. You find it one in a 200 bottles you t- taste or whatever. And I'm really lucky because I grew up in Chicago and I had a lot of friends that worked at auction houses. So they'd invite me to go taste. I mean, I was tasting thousands of dollars of Burgundy a month, just like it was like brunch time. You know, I would, and I would go to importer tastings where they would open stuff up that was from Meu Camuse or the, you know, Rumier and all these incredible producers that nobody could have, I could never afford that stuff. You know, so I have this running book of Burgundy in my mind of like sensory memory of having some experiences with really great Burgundy. And the problem is when you do find that perfect experience, if that wine is literally everything is in harmony and you are like standing in the vineyard almost and you just are, Mm. you can feel it and taste it. Well, likely of food around 
and you're likely going to just go f that chemistry all up in your mouth. <laughs> yeah. So now what? Now what do you do? Like, and usually if you're if you do end up having a bottle that ends up being magical, of course I'm going to want to share it with people. So you invite people over and you mm -hmm. make an awesome meal, and that meal it it's like the camaraderie and the convivial and the sharing, but then that all ends up changing the chemistry of the wine in your mouth. So there's something about Burgundy that's sort of like it's this studious thing and this celebratory thing and this very kind of white collar thing, which is unfortunate, but then yeah. it ends up like kind of all for naught, especially if you're with a bunch of friends and you're tasting a lot of Burgundy and sometimes people, you know, they don't spit and they are getting dry. So then you're not remembering the Burgundy, right? Like it's just, I don't know, it's a confusing and kind of, it, yeah. even though it's perfect, yeah. it can end up not being perfect depending on the- yep. The context. Yeah, yeah. I just wanted to throw that in there. Just a little wrench, a little yeah. wrench in Burgundy. Uh, so let's hear a little bit more music. Um, earlier I was talking about the Marinsky Theater and why that might be the place to go to hear. So, you know, I, I spent all that time explaining how Drigo, Ricardo Drigo, went and revised a lot of Tchaikovsky's music. He added some more of Tchaikovsky's music, took some stuff out, all of those things. So then you're like, well, what recording do I listen to? Well, most recordings you're going to find are going to be some kind of hybrid. Okay. And in a lot of cases, Drigo doesn't even get credit, which is, I think, kind of shocking given hmm. the kind of anal nature of the classical music world. But nonetheless, Drigo a lot of times doesn't even get credited. But um, there is quite possibly only one recording that is as close to possible as Drigo's intended revival of the whole thing. Drigo and um, Petipa and the director of the Imperial Theaters in Russia. And they, they launched this revival in 1895. Well, Tchaikovsky died in 1893, just to give you some perspective. But 1895 is when they did this new production of Swan Lake at the Marinsky Theater. And there's a recording from the Marinsky uh, Ballet Orchestra doing Drigo's revived Swan Lake. So okay. that recording you can find online. Pretty much any other recording is going to be some kind of hybrid between the two, more than likely. Okay. And anytime you go see it, that's probably going to be the case also. Okay. Now, I did mention before, if you'll recall, that that happens with operas and ballets all the time. Uh, and so it's not like that's a bastardization in any yeah. way, shape, or form because they might change the end. They might want it to be shorter because, you know, I think two hours is kind of a good comfort zone for a lot of people. Yeah. So, you know, things things along those lines get changed anyway. But uh, it, it can get really confusing because you're like, well, which production am I listening to or seeing? Yeah. Probably a little bit of both, honestly. Hmm. And they've probably changed some details of the story. Sometimes it's like, sometimes... Uh, the prince's best friend gives him a crossbow as a present, and then that's what he goes hunting with. So, I mean, so there's just okay. all, so many little detail variations. But um, it's not like Burgundy, where there's a lot of innovation happening. Yeah. But a lot of, you know, a lot of winemakers or growers are like staunch, you know, traditionalists, like, this is how we do things here. We don't do those things. Yeah. So, mm. Yeah. And one of my favorite things about Swan Lake is how it starts. If you'll remember, we listened to the very famous swan theme. So let me play the swan theme for you again, just to get that in your ear. And then we're going to listen to how the ballet starts, which is uh, a fun little twist on the swan theme. So here's the swan theme again. Okay. 
Okay. And here's how the ballet starts. A little flip-floppy. Yeah, it's 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 not a perfect inversion of the swan yeah. thing, but it's really close, and and I love that. Let's hear that again, the opening. Same note, same scale degree, same instrument, of course. I love that. Yeah, very creative. And there are so many beautiful solos for the instruments as well. You know, this lovely clarinet solo right now, but there's beautiful trumpet solos, there's beautiful violin solos, and of course the great brass that you expect mm-hmm. in Russian music, that comes through a lot too. It's, it's wonderful music. Speaking of wonderful music, I found some wonderful stats that are, they're actually pretty, they're sad, um, but it, they speak to, obviously sad, burgundy, Swan Lake, <laughs> but also just um, the misconception that a lot of humans have. Sharks are like these predators that like yeah. come and attack surfers just to like yeah. nibble, nibble. And when in reality, a lot of times they're just curious yep. and we're in their territory, right? We're, we're like going and using their home. Like yeah. someone come into, comes into our home, we want to all go buy guns to protect ourselves. It's <laughs> like, what's the difference, you know? Anyway, so the Atlantic population of scalloped hammerheads declined from, in 1881, the population was about 155,000, give hmm. or take. And in 2005, there were about 26,000, wow. closer to 27,000. So humans are having a huge effect on hunting sharks, whether it's for jaws, their teeth, their oil, most commonly for their fins, Mm -hmm. stupid shark fin soup. I'll never eat it. I never want to see it. It's awful. Someone asked me the other day, they're like, well, when you're in Iceland, did you have fermented shark? And I was like, no. No. And they're like, yeah, but it's like the coolest thing. Like they're like, they're fermenting it. They are using all of it. And I was like, no. That's not what it's about. And And they're also like, but the Icelanders have never overfished sharks like a lot of Asian communities, Russian community, And I was like, it's not what it's, no. I never want to put shark in my mouth ever. Approximately, guess, take a guess in the U.S. in 2020, Mm -hmm. how many shark attacks there were? I mean, probably just a couple dozen, honestly. A few more, yeah, about about 30, 33. Okay. Okay, okay. Fatal, there were three. Yeah. Okay, now this is a global... But it can't even remotely touch it. This is a global figure. Approximately 100 million sharks are killed globally each year. And if anybody wants to learn more about the human influence on the declining shark population, check out Rob, not Rod Stewart. (laughs) Rob Stewart, he's a Canadian filmmaker. He had an incredible love for the ocean and especially sharks. And he made it his life's work to show them in their habitat and how incredible they are and also to really open the curtains on what was really happening and what is really happening in Central and South America with the shark trade. Just mm. thousands of sharks being killed a day because they're worth a lot of money, yeah. especially for their oil. And so just, I don't yeah. know, for, I'm, I'm uh, you know, someone that uses makeup on, you know, on my face. <laughs> and that's one of the huge um, contributors to, 
like using shark oil is to be used in makeup. So mm. I don't know, just like do your research. It's huge in the pet food trade and business. Like mm. know where your pet food is coming from and what's, because it doesn't say sharks on the ingredients right. label, right? It's it, it's disguised. Yeah, of So course. I don't know. Yeah. As, as much as I, yes, this show is, we're, we're not about marine biology. We're not a <laughs> conservationist show, mm-hmm. but I consider it like a small part of what I want to contribute to the world is mm-hmm. like, conserving nature and conserving obviously one of the coolest predators and animals of all time. Beautiful. And animals. so what other way to talk about their grace, <laughs> the fact that they are hunted mm-hmm. and they are like the apex uh, predator of the non-human world. <laughs> uh, yeah. And of the ocean community of which, you know, this many would consider in the wine world. This is the apex. Burgundy. Yeah. Burgundy, Pinot Noir, apex of yeah. red wine. Yeah. Well, on that note, cheers. Cheers to Grace, and here's to Sharks. And Scores and Pours. And Tchaikovsky. Thank you for listening to Scores and Pours with Jill Mott and Emily Reese. You can find links, information, like a playlist, a wine list, also how to buy merch and how to support us financially at patreon.com slash scores and pours. We are also on Instagram at scores and pours. Please feel free to DM us, send us a message, show ideas, feedback. We'd love to hear from you. Please do consider supporting the musicians we featured today by buying their music. Edited by Joe Mott and Emily Reese. Our producer is Sam Keenan. Scores and Pours is a production of June Media Inc. Joe. Thank you.